we uh, you've heard all these, but in 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 uh, risk of repetition, how many does it take to change a light bulb? How many charismatics does it take to change a light bulb? One to change a bulb and nine to pray against the spirit of darkness. <laughs> how many TV evangelists does it take? Well, one, but the message of light to continue, send in your donation today. <laughs> how many Calvinists does it take to change a light bulb? None. God has already predestined the light to be on. And Calvinists do not change light bulbs. They simply read instructions and pray the light bulb will be the one that has been chosen to be changed. How many independent fundamentalists does it take to change a light bulb? Well, only one because any more might result in too much cooperation. <laughs> how many Catholics? How many Catholics does it take to change a light bulb? Well, none. They always use candles. How many United Methodists? Do we have any here? I don't want to read this in case there's any United. <laughs> how many United Methodists does it take? <laughs> the statement was issued. We choose not to make a statement either in favor or against the need of a light bulb. However, if in your own journey you have found that the light bulb works for you, that is fine. You're invited to write a poem or compose a modern dance about your personal relationship with your light bulb or light source or non-dark resource and present it at the next month at our annual light bulb Sunday service in which we will explore the number of light bulb traditions including incandescent, fluorescent, three-way, lifelong, halogen, and tinted, all of which are equally valid paths to luminescence. How many Baptists? Now we might get, get closer here. How many Baptists does it take? I go to a Baptist church, so I'm picking on myself, all right? Um, how many Baptists does it take to change light bulb? Change? What do you mean change? My grandmother gave me that light bulb. We have missionaries that are working in the country of Luxembourg, and this is the motto for the city. It's both city and country. Can you imagine? And they've, got, you know, they've actually got it plastered on the wall. This is, how would you like to go to a city or a country where their motto is, we're not changing. Uh, we, we've got missionaries that work in Resistencia, Argentina. That's the name of the town. Uh, how would you like to go to a town in which people have just named ourselves, we're known for resistance. We're, we're not going to change. And uh, some of you are thinking right now, I pastor a church, or I work for an organization in which that's kind of our motto, right? We're not going to change. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a challenging, difficult thing, isn't it? Well, we're going to talk a little bit about both of those ideas. The topic assigned to me was tradition and change. So we're going to talk a little bit about tradition. We're going to talk a little bit about change. Um, someone has said this, nothing will stop a church faster, or maybe you could say an organization, since many of us here are organizational leaders. Faster than the arrogant belief that the way we worked yesterday is likewise the way we need to work tomorrow. Whether we like it or not, we're dealing with the subject of change. Uh, it's just coming at us, and we have to deal with it. So let's talk a little bit about those two issues. One, tradition, and the other is change. And I'm not going to teach this first part. You're going to teach this. I copied for you all of the verses in, in the New Testament on the, that have the word tradition. So glance through there. You, you know all of these verses. What is it from these verses that we glean about the subject of tradition? Um, in its most basic form, the word tradition simply means teaching. Okay? Obviously, it carries a connotation of some doing, but in essence, it's basically the idea of here's, here's a teaching. Now, we do certain things because of the teaching, but that's the basic idea about it. 
But if you glance through those verses, here's what the New Testament says about the topic of tradition. What are some principles or ideas that just sort of bounce off the page at you? Several of them, the word tradition is preceded by the word yoke. By the word what? Yoke. Okay, your tradition, okay? Which means there are some that are either self-induced or put upon us not by God but by people. What else do we observe about traditions? Seems to have a negative connotation. All right. Uh, some can be negative, right? Some can be positive. Uh, traditions of men compared to commandments of God. All right. And there are some some of those verses where it talks about God's traditions, God God's teaching. So that would be the positive side of it. What else do we observe about traditions? Okay. We sort of adopt them, don't we, from the previous generation? They're often held as a standard. All right. That becomes the standard now, the way our culture, the way we operate. So it's, it's sort of the assumed way that we're going to do things. The Sadducees believed in the Torah as being the uh, authority, the authority, authority by which they lived their lives. The Pharisees were the ones that were known to add the traditions. So there was that combat between those two groups there. So the Pharisees are the ones that sort of get the bad rap of having adopted all of these traditions in which they started adding layer upon layer of rules. So they started off with the word of God, but they said, how does this look? What does it look like? How do we flesh this out in life? That's where they started making the list. All right, any other observations about? They're all highlighted in yellow. <laughs> I was trying to make it real simple. All right. Okay, so sometimes it's actually anti the teachings of the Word of God. Any other observations? They become standard by which you judge others. So okay. All right, so we assume we're right and they're wrong because they haven't followed this tradition. Could we agree at least this much that there are positive, negative, and neutral tra uh, traditions? There are some that are positive. Uh, Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, hold the traditions that I passed on. In other words, he would talk about some of his teaching and say, these are traditions or these are teachings that you need to hang on to. And so they were positive. They were the word of God. Then there is the negative, which are not God-ordained and actually would be anti what or adding to what God said. Um, and some of those verses are relating to that. Then there would be some that are just neutral. They're, either, they're not addressed. We have established some traditions for ourselves, and uh, they're not bad and they're not good. You can't argue that they're found in Scripture. That's just the way we have always done things. And that's, in its most basic uh, definition, harking back to yesterday's session, culture is just, uh, the working definition I use is, that's the way, th that's the way we do things. So in our churches, organizations, there's a lot of our stuff that we do. That's just the way we do things. It's not right or wrong. It's just that's the way we do things. So I think we could agree we're at least not going to go into the negative. We definitely are going to follow the positive. So really, when we talk about change, we're not talking about the top one. And hopefully we're not in the second one. We're really talking about those third ones, that there's a cluster of things that that's just the way we do things. And those are the things that we have to be malleable 
that we have to be willing to change. We're obviously anchoring who we are and what we do in the Word of God. But sometimes that's a bit more of a challenge than we might want to admit. And uh, could it be in our world that we have some traditions that we are dogmatic about, but maybe they weren't ones that God said we had to have? We just came up with, and they're not bad, but they're not good. Or they may have been good at one time, they may not be good now. So those are just some of the issues that we've got to wrestle with with, with the subject of, 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 uh, of traditions. Any other observations about traditions? The teachings. Okay, so there are traditions that we're not going to we're not going to wiggle on. We're, we're we're stuck there because that's what the Bible says. There does seem to be some appeal to an authority. It would be the tradition of the elders, or the tradition of the fathers, or the tradition of the apostles, or, or of Christ even. Okay. There's some appeal to an authority. And isn't there some right? or responsibility for leadership, be it of a church or an organization, to establish some traditions. Not to say, thus saith the word of God, but simply to say, this is the way we do it around here. And, you know, there's a lot of good agencies, mission agencies out there, and really the difference between us is really just some of us do it this way and some of them do it that way. It's not right or wrong, it's just... And so I I tell people as they think in terms of missions... The, probably the more important decision for you to make is not where you go in the world to be a missionary, it's the organization that you join. Because you've got to find the right one that does things that you're going to be happy the way they do it. Uh, and those are just our man-made traditions. One of the issues that we're dealing with in leadership is which of those do we mess with? Which do we want to keep there? If they are the neutral ones, they're, they're neither positive nor ne- negative, which, which are the ones that we hang on to? Um, in talking with the next generation coming along, one of the things that I've heard from a number of them, they, they said they really appreciate some of the traditions uh, because everything in their world is changing so quick and everything has been so recent. Everything is so temporary. They appreciate things that go back 2,000 years. And they, that's one of the things I think that is bending people back towards some of the more liturgical churches. They're saying, well, these guys have been doing the same liturgy now for 1,000 years. There's at least some stability there. There's some continuity there because their lives are so uh, so discontinuous. And so we may think in terms of we've got to change because the next generation is coming along and they're going to demand it, but it's not always the case. Sometimes there's a greater appreciation for the traditions than maybe some of us might have. All right, any other observations about traditions? And hopefully these ones that we might consider neutral, we have gleaned that from that and said, okay, let's principalize that and then put it into practice. And in our world, this is the way we do it. Probably the place that we get into trouble is when we canonize those neutral ones and we say, okay, that's the way it's got to be. We may want to hang on to them because there could be some very strong benefits for it. 
But as we think in terms of change, we're going to have to be willing to say, let's take a look at some of those neutral ones and see if there might be some wiggle room or some opportunity for adjusting so that we can be more effective in today's world. All right. Any other comments on, on, on tradition, what, what you're seeing here from, from these verses? I think we're tracking on this issue of traditions. We, none of us would like to think of ourselves as a Pharisee, but there's probably more Pharisee in me than I'd like to admit. And we all have that element and that proclivity to bend in that direction. And it's really hard for us to be objective, isn't it? I mean, we like to think we're objective and we like to think we're reasonable, but uh, there's probably more Pharisee in me than, uh, than I see in myself. So I have to constantly work on this thing of what are those things that I hold to loosely. I'm not going to cave on the top one. I'm not going to cave on what the Word of God says. I'm not going to. That's not up for debate. So when we talk about this subject of change here in just a moment, we're not even considering that. And I realize that there are denominations of churches that are jettisoning a lot of that. We're saying we don't have any wiggle room there. We're that's where we are. So when it comes to the word of God, which we can, through clear exegesis, all agree, this is what the text says, that's a closed case. So as we talk about change now in the next few moments, uh, we're not talking about that top one. We're really just dealing with the, the bottom one, the, the ones that, that we have some wiggle room. How do we manage that change? And so let's, let's think a little bit about the subject of change. I'd like to first of all state that uh, it's not a dirty word. Uh, some of us uh, might really appreciate and, and lock into our tradition, but we've got to understand that change in and of itself is a good thing. It is really foundational to the Christian walk. Um, God's, God does, we have an unchangeable God from a certain vantage point, but does God change things? Our hermeneutic is dispensational. Why? Because God does change the way he operates. Does God change? No, but he does change the way he operates. So some things have changed, and everything about what we do in ministry is really about change, isn't it? When it comes to salvation, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We are change agents. So the evangelist or the pastor as you deal with sanctification of believers, whether it's evangelism or the sanctification process, it's really all about change. In fact, we would feel defeated if we never saw any change take place. The irony is, as leaders and as Christian workers, we are expecting change, but we struggle with change ourselves, don't we? It's hard for us to deal with the issue of change. Um, so change is not a bad thing. It's part and parcel of what the Christian life is like. I'm glad I'm not what I was 10 years ago. And I hope that I've moved on from where I was 30 years ago. 
And I don't want to be the same place next year where I am right now. It's all about change. So change is not a bad thing. The question is, what are those things that we change? Leadership is all about bringing about change. That's really what we do, isn't it? Because leaders are dissatisfied with status quo, and our role is to say, here's where we are, but there's where we could be. What do we need to change to get us to there? And if you don't have a there there, you're not leading. You're just standing still. And so our role as leaders is all about bringing about change. That's who we are. That's, that's intrinsic to the very basic definition and understanding of what a leader is. We are here to bring about change. Well, let's think a little bit about that subject of change because it's a challenging topic. How do we manage change? What are the dynamics of change? And to do that, I want us to go to a passage of Scripture. In Acts chapter 27, this is a narrative passage, so it's telling the story, but there are some principles I think we can draw from this passage that help us to understand the idea of change. Um, this is not the main thrust of this passage, because the narrative is telling us Paul's uh, the, the story of the shipwreck. But I think there are some ancillary um, ideas that we can glean from this story, particularly in this instance, relate to the subject of change. Paul is going to go on a sea voyage, on a cruise, and uh, things are going to change in a rather dramatic way. Uh, this was not Carnival Cruise Lines, but he was going to get to Rome. At least that was the intention of everybody, that that's where they were going to head. But in the middle of that trip, things changed rather dramatically. And so it's fascinating to see the dynamics of how people react within a storm. And that really is somewhat of a picture or a backdrop to what we do in ministry. Uh, if you don't have a storm going on right now, uh, batten down the hatches because it's coming. That's just part of life, isn't it? It's part of ministry. There are always going to be storms coming our way. So let's take a look at this passage, and I just want to draw out a few principles or ideas on the subject of change from this story. Verse 20, uh, chapter 27, verse 1, when, when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul to the prisoners, to the centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking on the ship of Andronitum, they were about to, which was about to sail to the ports of the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus of Macedonia from Thessalonica. Uh, the story goes on. We'll pick it up. Uh, well, let me, let, me, let me read the next few verses. The next day we put into Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends to be cared for. And putting out to sea, we sailed there under the lee of Cyprus because the, the, the winds were against us. They sailed across the open sea to the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, and they came to Myrna and Lycia, and there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus, and as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmoni. Coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because of the fast was already over, uh, Paul advised them, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, in the majority decided to, to put out to sea from there 
on the chance that somehow they would reach Phoenix, the harbor of Crete, facing from both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now notice the next verse. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along to Crete, close to the shore. This is the calm before the storm. And this is the way it always works. Uh, organizations, basically, be it a church or a mission organization or any kind of organization, goes through this kind of life cycle. You sort of get started, and then normally there's a lot of energy that creates a lot of growth and expansion, and you really move forward. But you eventually get to a place where you're kind of on the top of your game, you know, we've sort of reached our destination. We've got enough people where we can pay the bills. You know, things are going well, and then things plateau. And then after that plateau, things start going downhill. And then eventually the organization or the church goes out of existence. This happens with every church, every organization. I don't know of any church or organization that's been around for 2,000 years. So your organization or your church might last for three years. It might last for 30 years. It might last for 300 years, but you're going to go through the cycle. So this bell curve that is so well known is just part and parcel of life of being an organization or a church. You're going to probably go through that. Leadership has to figure out how to keep that end there from, from, from ending too soon, right? That's really all we're doing. We're saying, how do we keep this thing moving forward and growing? The easiest time to try to bring about change is there. Why? Because everybody knows there's a storm and there's a crisis. And, and, and in change management, the thing that causes people to want to change is the fact that they realize there's a crisis. So what do you do when there's not a crisis? Because that's not the best time to try to, to change things. You're in the middle of a crisis. But that's normally the time where we think about change. Why? Because as long as we're growing, things are great. Even when we're in the plateau stage, I mean, everybody's sort of happy with us. Things are going nice. We're sailing along. The winds are blowing softly. And uh, we ignore the fact that there's a storm coming. So how do you, if, if, if that's not the best time to make the change, when would be the best time to make the change? Prior to the plateau. Now, that's a bit counterintuitive, isn't it? Because as you're climbing and things are going great and there's a lot of energy and enthusiasm and you're succeeding, however, however you define success, you start talking about changing things. People are saying, don't mess with it. we got a winning formula here. There's a book that was written a number of years ago um, that was entitled, If It Ain't Broke, Break It. <laughs> you read that book? Uh, if It Ain't Broke, Break It. Now, that's a bit counterintuitive, isn't it? Because we're saying, wow, if we're succeeding, even if we're on the plateau, things are smooth and nicely. There's a, there's a calm wind blowing. Uh, supposing that we have obtained our purpose. In an organization or a church, we don't really want to rock the boat, do we? During those two stages. But the time to try to launch into the next phase of ministry is really while you're on the uphill climb, even not during the plateau time. 
unfortunately, we wait until we're in crisis mode when things are falling apart to try to bring about change. But then you're trying to do what we're going to read about here in just a few moments. We're trying to do all of this stuff and manage change in the middle of it. It becomes a very complex thing to do. And so in verse 14, the storm comes. But soon a tempestuous wind called Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave, to, we gave way to it and were driven along. We know that the storm's going to come. Sooner or later, we're dealing with people, we're in ministry, we're, we're fighting the evil one. There, there's going to be a storm. So how do we deal with that? Well, the rest of the story kind of tells us different things about the dynamics of how people deal with storms. It's fascinating to watch this. We're going to walk our way through this. But the key is that as leaders, we are thinking in terms of, okay, things are going well right now. What do we need to change now in order to extend that upward climb and keep moving forward? And instead of waiting till we've either plateaued or starting to go down, what do we do now? And that's really tough to do that because you come along and you tell everybody in the organization, okay, we're going to change a couple of things here. They say, wait, 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 don't do that. We're, we're, we're happy with the way things are. We're succeeding. We've got a formula that works, and it's a hard sell to get an organization or a church to change when things are going great. But unfortunately, that's the time you've got to start thinking in terms of change. Well, what then are some of the options? Well, one of them is simply do nothing. We read about that. Uh, verse 15, the ship was caught up. We could not face the wind. We gave way to it and were driven along. Just do nothing. Um, someone is, and I don't know who to give credit to this. I've seen it so many different places. So somebody came up with this and not me. But uh, someone has put it this way. The first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Leadership is about being honest with how things presently are. And if you're in the middle of a storm and you're acting like this is just a calm day at the beach, it does two things. One, it diminishes your leadership because what? The followers know there's a storm. Everybody else knows there's a storm. You're the only one sort of acting oblivious to it. So your leadership capital has just gone down the tubes. People say, you're out of touch. So one of the things that we have to do as leaders is we have to be honest enough and objective enough to define reality. It's really critical. And until you define reality and say, here's where we are, you can't say that's where we need to be. So you've got to, first of all, figure out where you are. This is not complicated stuff. This is just really simple stuff. I realize that. But it's so profound. It's so important for us as we try to figure out what we need to do in leadership. If we're going to bring about change, we've got to, first of all, figure out where we are but not just let things go. And so their first tack, or the first thing they were going to do in the ship is, all right, the wind's blowing. We're just going to let it blow us wherever it wants to blow us. That obviously is an abdication of leadership. Leaders do not just sit there and say, well, let's see where this goes. <laughs> Our role is to say, we're in a storm. How are we going to adjust to deal with this storm? And so... Um, we, we don't really, as leaders, have an option of, of this one. Just do nothing. 
If we're doing nothing, we need to get out of the way. Someone else needs to take over leadership. Someone has put it this way. When the horse is dead, dismount. (laughs) But we have other strategies. Buy a stronger whip, change riders. Say, this is the way we've always ridden this horse. Appoint a committee to study the horse. Arrange a visit to other sites to see how they ride dead horses. Uh, Rewrite the standards for dead horse performance. Hire an outside consultant to ride the dead horse. Or harness several dead horses together uh, to increase the speed and pulling power. Or provide additional incentive funding so that we can increase the, the horse's performance. Or shorten the track. Or get the horse a website. You've know, got to do something, you know. But uh, there, there, are some, there are some traditions that we have established that maybe we just need to dismount. And that's where wisdom in leadership comes in. And that's the tricky part, isn't it? Knowing which horse to dismount. Which one am, which, which, which things, do we just let this thing drift? Or do we do something? Well, their first tack was that. The second tack was this, demand control. Look at verse 16. Running under the lee of the small island called Kata, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. And after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Uh, in technical terms, that's frapping the ship. Then they would run these cables underneath, tighten them up. That would, wooden ships, it would just sort of hold, it would it'd bind them together. But kind of a picture of, of the way sometimes when we hit a storm that we, we manage, and that is we just sort of tighten things up and we try to demand control uh, it's kind of illustrated in the little boy who was so fearful that his puppy dog was going to run away that he squeezed it so hard that he actually killed the puppy dog and I've watched leaders do that to their organizations you can have control or you can have growth but you can't have both and we tend to be very controlling don't we we want to control everything and we frap our ships because we want to hang on to things. We don't want anything to get away from us. And, and out, of, out, of, out of the fear of the storm, we tense up. And in that tensing up, we tend to, tend to squeeze harder. And we tend to stifle creativity. And we stifle advancing. Because we're sort of just battening down the hatches. So that is a way that some leaders approach. Some just do nothing. We're just going to ride this thing out. Hope for the best. Others become so controlling that it actually kills the very thing that they want to breathe life into notice the next approach drag your feet last part of verse 17 Um, thus they were just driven along Uh, verse um, let me begin verse 17 beginning of verse 17. After hoisting it up, they used the sports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground, they lowered the gear, is the way that my translation here puts it. They let down the sea anchor. Literally, what they would have done is a smaller anchor they would have thrown out the back, which would have just slowed down the process. In other words, this thing would just sort of drag along the bottom. It wouldn't hold them firm, but at least it would slow down the pace at which they were being driven by, by, the, by, the, by the winds. So there are some people that when they face storms, they just sort of drag their feet. They uh, just sort of say, let's try to slow down the damage of this storm. They're not really dealing with the storm. 
They're simply trying to hold it off as much as possible. There's an interesting uh, verse in Ecclesiastes that says, Say not thou, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely. When you try to bring about change in your organization or church, have you ever had anybody say, talk about the good old days? <laughs> Ecclesiastes says that's not wise. And one of the problems or one of the challenges in bringing about change is those that knew the past tend to be offended by the changes because they assume that we're saying what they did in the past was wrong. And that's not what we're saying when we bring about change. And we have to go overboard explaining this, that that worked in that day, just dragging our feet, hoping that there's not a storm or that we're not drifting. Uh, just dragging our feet is not going to solve this problem. But saying those were the good old days, well, the good old days don't exist anymore. And we honor those people in the good old days. And they figured out what they needed to do then. But in the meantime, there's been a storm that's come along. We've got to deal with this storm. That was another storm that they dealt with. And so we've, we need to appreciate the past, but we can't be dragged down by it. And the writer of Ecclesiastes says, you're not wise if you dwell on the good old days. Uh, another approach that they took, verse 18, was just to dump things overboard. Look at verse 18. Uh, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And the third day, they threw out the ship's targle, uh, tackle overboard with their own hands. Uh, the knee-jerk reaction when the storm comes, when there's a financial crunch, when there's trouble in the ranks, when there's problems in the organization or in the church, is just to start tossing away certain things. And there are some things that we say, oh, I've been wanting to get rid of that thing for a long time. Now's my opportunity to do so. And so we start jettisoning some cargo indiscriminately. And there are some good things that we toss overboard in the middle of a storm. And so this is not a science. At least I've not figured out how to put this in an objective test tube. This is, this is more of an art. It's wisdom. It's getting counsel from people to say, do we need to jettison this piece of cargo? Is this weighing us down? Or do we hang on to that? Uh, I don't know much about sailing, but I think some of the things they were tossing overboard were things that they needed to sail. And sometimes we jettison those things that we need to sail, our organization or our church, and we can't just toss everything overboard. But there is wisdom in knowing in the middle of a storm, what things do we jettison? I was down in... Um, Argentina, and I was talking to an Argentine pastor down there, and he told me this story. It's kind of a, it's a funny little story. I'm sure it wasn't true. But uh, he said there was an Indian holy man that went up through the mountains, and he came across this uh, peasant who had one cow, and that's all they had between them and poverty, but at least they had enough to make butter and get some milk. And uh, the holy man visited them, and he went on down the road. And then he sent his assistant back, and he said, go back to that little village there, where this, this poor family is and push their cow over the cliff. And the assistant said, I can't do that. Said, yeah, go do that. And so the assistant went back, pushed the cow over the cliff. Well, a couple of years later, the holy man and his assistant come back to that same little village and they visit this poor little family who now have a mansion on the side of the mountaintop with a swimming pool and a car and a helicopter. And, uh, and, and the assistant said, what happened? Well, the people said, well, once we got rid of our cow, we were able to think a whole lot differently, and they came up with a business plan, and now this guy was a 
profitable business guy living up there in the mountains. But somebody had to push the sacred cow over the cliff. And that's where our wisdom comes in. When do we push certain cows over the cliff? What are some things that we would do well to jettison because they're just dragging us down? And what are the things that we need to keep in the ship? Because if we don't have those things, we're not going to sail. Again, that's not a science. That's just something that uh, we're going to have to deal with and come up with a plan to figure out what we do and what we don't do. Another uh, response was discouragement. Look at verse 20. When neither sun or moon, or stars, rather, appeared for many days, no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Uh, I'm no counselor, but uh, I believe in counseling. They train you. One of the first things that you do is you offer hope. Why? Because things look really bad. So discouragement is a reality of storms. And one of the things that kicks in in an organization or a church when things aren't going well is, of course, discouragement. When people aren't responsive, they start, or when things aren't happening well, there's, you know, people start whining. And people start getting discouraged. And people start wanting to jump overboard. Um, but the Word of God is full of hope, isn't it? And storms are incredible opportunities and blessings. The world of missions, the world that I live in, international ministries, is changing pretty dramatically. In fact, I think there's probably more of a sea change in missions right now than we've seen in, in, in quite a few decades. One of the issues that we're dealing with, and I think all of you that are trying to recruit people, is recruiting has changed. Uh, there's probably six or eight colleges that we used to go to to recruit missionaries that don't exist anymore. And many of the colleges that we do still go to are shrinking in size or they're shifting to more liberal arts courses. So there is not the fishing pool of potential missionaries that there once was. And I'm not here to, to denigrate colleges. We, we need them, and I, I wish this wasn't happening. But that's the reality, that we just don't have the fishing pond that we used to have to get missionaries to go to the field. Now, we can either become discouraged by that, or we can say, what do we need to change? This has caused us as an organization to make some radical changes in what we're doing in recruiting, and I am so excited about the future. And I think there is so great potential in recruiting for the future, but we have to change. We have to face the reality that things are not going to be like they were in the past. And we're going to still keep going to these colleges and seminaries, but there just aren't as many to go to anymore. And there aren't as many students there that are going to go into international ministries as there once was. But it doesn't mean we throw up our hands in despair and just say, let's give up, let's be discouraged. It drives us to say, how do we deal with our day? What is it that we jettison? What is it we do today to expand recruiting to greater heights than we've ever had before? And I think some of our best days of missions can still be ahead of us if we'll think a little bit differently. Not like Ecclesiastes said, wishing we had the good old days. And here where I'm going to go against Ecclesiastes, I sometimes want, I sometimes have in my more carnal moments, I thought, I would, have, I would have loved to be doing this job, being a director of a mission agency, back in the 40s and the 50s. Man, things were cooking back then. Every ship leaving New York City was, you know, half full of missionaries. I mean, that was kind of our heyday of missions in North America. But God didn't put me there. He put me here. 
And it's wrong for me to say wish for the good old days. I've got to deal with the issues that we face today. And this is not something that we should be discouraged about, though we can see why there could be discouragement set in. We've got to change our attitude about this whole thing. Well, the next principle that we say here is just delay the inevitable. Look at verse 27. When the 14th night had come, we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea. About midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. They took a sounding. They found it to be 20 fathoms. A little further, they took a sounding again, found it to be 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run against the rocks, they let down the sea anchors from the stern and prayed for night to come, or for day to come. Sort of just delay the inevitable. Um, I grew up in Nigeria, and, and, and we didn't have OSHA back then, so we could do a whole bunch of stuff that you really shouldn't do today. But one of the things that we didn't have Disney World either, so our recreation was stuff like this. Uh, we, we used firewood, and so my dad would chop down a tree, and what we'd do is we'd climb the tree and uh, wait for my dad to chop down the tree, and then we'd ride it down. And, uh, you know, we didn't have roller coasters, so that was the best we could do. But that's kind of an image of oftentimes what leaders are doing. This tree is going down, and we're just going to ride it to the ground. And then the trick is to jump off just the last second before it hits the ground. And especially the older we get, the temptation is greater for us to say, let's not rock this boat. Let's just ride this thing to the ground and jump off before it actually crashes. And I didn't want to do that. So we just launched. I, 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 I see the end of my days, you know, it's down the road because they're putting me out to pasture in the not-too-distant future. But we just launched a five-year strategic initiative for BW. I didn't want to ride this thing to ground. I could have probably gotten by with just sort of coasting the last couple of years. Because we've done, you know, everything's fine. Our balance sheet's great. You know, things are fine. But we can't do that. We can't just ride this thing down and delay the inevitable. We've got to do something to try to keep that tree standing or... I don't know if that analogy works that well. But uh, last thing is, is despair. Look at, look at verse 30. And the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, and they lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. And Paul then gives a warning. You guys need to stand the ship. Uh, abandon ship. Things get so bad that we, uh, we just jump ship. And I know the temptation for us as leaders is when things aren't going well, we start looking around for another role, another position, another place to do ministry. And that temptation is always there because of the storm that's going around. So those are just some of the responses that uh, choices that could be made in the middle of a storm. These are all dynamics of change, and it's not an easy thing to do. But we have to be leaders. We as leaders need to define reality and say, here's the way things are right now, but that's where we could be. And the spirit of optimism and looking for the future has to be part of our DNA that is built into us that we are saying the best days are yet ahead and we can do better. And yes, we're facing a storm, but leadership is all about me being willing to, uh, to, to, to adjust to the circumstances in which I face myself and then do something about it.